Emmanuel Macron is still the president of France. He has been re-elected. And Elon Musk is about to be the overlord of Twitter. They are our two main stories this evening. We'll also be talking about Angela Rayner and Jeremy Corbyn, NATO and Keir Starmer. Emmanuel Macron has been re-elected as president of France, beating Marine Le Pen by 58 to 42%. He is the first French president to win a second term since Jacques Chirac in 2002. But his victory speech was nonetheless fairly conciliatory. After thanking those who'd voted for him in both the first and second rounds, Macron said this. I also know full well that many people tonight voted for me not to support my ideals, but to block the far right. And I want to thank them tonight. I want to tell them that I understand the duty that comes with that vote for the coming years. I have been entrusted with their sense of duty, their feelings for the Republic and for the differences that have been expressed over the last weeks. I also spare a thought for all of our fellow citizens who did not vote. Their silence means they refuse to choose. And we also need to answer them. And finally, my thoughts go to those who voted for Mrs. Le Pen. I understand her disappointment this evening. No, no booing. From the very beginning, I've said that I don't want to see that. Because from now on, I am no longer a candidate for a party, but I am everyone's president. The reason Macron reigned in his triumphalism is probably because the far right scored a historically good result. 41.5% of French voters backed Le Pen on Sunday, which is a big improvement on the 34% she received in 2017. And that increase led to Marine Le Pen sounding pretty confrontational in her concession speech. To all those who wanted to see our party disappear, I would just like to say that I see a new form of hope. Because the results that we have, it shows that in France and in Europe, that, that the leaders in France and Europe are going to have to face a sense of great mistrust from the people. There are great winds of change afoot. What we show is that we can stand up as a power to counterbalance that shown by Emmanuel Macron and his party. We will be there to protect men and women in France, to ensure that they have purchasing power, to ensure that we have strong social security systems, strong public institutions. We will be able to stand up against the retirement reform that Macron wants to bring in. Tonight, what I fear is that the coming five years will be one with the same sort of disregard that we have seen over the past five years. That Macron will further create division within our country as opposed to closing down those gaps. Because instead of having the power in the hands of few, I will fight to bring power to the hands of the French people. I will do so with steadfast determination that you have seen me put into motion these past few years. In that speech, you could hear just how much Le Pen is trying to appeal to left-wing and working-class voters. But thankfully, 
That attempt has not been too successful so far. Despite lots of talk about red-brown alliances, only 17% of people who voted for the left-wing Mélenchon in the first round switched to Le Pen. A full 42% of Mélenchon voters voted for Macron, with 41% abstaining. And one might assume it's people from that left-wing abstainer group that took to the streets last night in Lyon and Paris. You can see here riot police out in force in the capital, lots of photographers and a few hundred protesters. We've got one final data point for you. This is the age breakdown of Macron and Le Pen voters. Unlike, say, the Brexit vote, Le Pen supporters are pretty evenly spread across the age groups. It's only the very young and very old that swung dramatically to Macron. It means time isn't necessarily on the side of French anti-fascists. For an expert take, earlier today I spoke to Aurélien Mondon, an academic on French politics and co-author of Reactionary Democracy, How Racism and the Populist Far-Right Became Mainstream. There is a continuous trend, unfortunately, in France, which is obviously not just happening in France, but in many other countries. And we see an increased mainstreaming of far-right politics, even though Marine Le Pen lost. Her ideas keep progressing within the French electorate, but also within the French elite. And so it was quite a, a difficult second round for a lot of people in France and particularly left-wing people who felt that they had to vote for the lesser of two evils. Obviously, no one wanted to see the far-right go through, but very few wanted to see Macron, who had been mainstreaming many far-right ideas in his first presidency, go through either. So I think it is sending us further down that kind of slippery slope that is legitimizing the far right at every election uh, we have at this stage. So I think this is the, the big news in a way. Marine Le Pen might be defeated, but her ideas are more mainstream than ever. And the vote share for the far right does seem to be going in one direction. So from 2002 to 2017 to this weekend. What should we make of that? Is that a story of just the French electorate getting more and more far right and more and more disappointed with the centre? I've also seen sort of the opposite take where people are saying, I've seen some analysts say that this is actually just a case of the far right or Le Pen, the national rally as they are now called, getting smarter and focusing on less divisive issues. We've, we've seen clips of us sort of talking about the economy should work for the many, not the few, that kind of thing. Is this, is this Le Pen moderating herself or becoming more smart or is this the electorate becoming more comfortable with far-right ideas? It's a combination of things. To some extent, Marine Le Pen has continued the, the process of what has been called dédiabolisation in France, which is dédémonisation of a party, although that's a problematic term because the problem was never demonised. It was just talked about as, as extreme-right, racist and far-right, something we, we don't necessarily say quite enough anymore. So she's been very good at trying to moderate the image of the party. Uh, her father had already started that. Uh, she was better at it because she had, of course, a much cleaner personality and, and cleaner background than, than her father had. So that has played a part. But I think it would be mistaken to think of the rise of the far right and the rise of the Rassemblement National and the Le Pens just uh, through, based on their own kind of cunningness, if you want, or their own strategy or their own kind of um, noose, political noose. Because what I have witnessed in my research is that, in fact, mainstream actors have played a key role in mainstreaming the far right in France, but also in other countries such as the UK, the US and, and many others through either giving them disproportionate coverage uh, in the media, for example, or by borrowing their ideas to divert away from, from the many crises that, uh, that the French people in this case are facing. You know, we've seen that since the early 2000s when uh, when Jacques Chirac tried to, to do that in response of Jean-Marie Le Pen reaching the second round, even though the issues were elsewhere, the issues were the distrust in mainstream politics. It wasn't the far right that was on the rise at the time. It was the mainstream parties that were crumbling. 
But ever since the 2002, what we've seen is mainstream politicians, left, right and center, borrowing ideas from the far right so that they can divert away from their failure to respond to other issues such as cost of living, uh, healthcare, uh, the environment and so on and so forth. The other thing that I think has benefited Marine Le Pen this time around is the candidature of extreme right Eric Zemmour, who really took up a much more extreme old school approach uh, to far right politics uh, with, with really kind of unashamed racism, sexism, homophobia. And, uh, and this has, by comparison, uh, made Marine Le Pen look more moderate, even though her, her program is in fact more, more radical, I would say, than it was in 2017 even. I think Finally, the, the, the other thing that is very important is the way the party has been talked about. And, uh, and again, this is not necessarily what the party has done, but the way the party has been lucky enough to be talked about in a way that has, that has helped them a, a great deal. The Front National remains an extreme right party. It remains opposed to workers. Uh, um, and, and yet it's been talked about as if it was the workers party, as if it was defending the left behind and so on and so forth. This couldn't be further from the truth by taking just a quick look at the program. And yet this has been the, the mainstream narrative in the media. And, and I think this is very, very problematic. And what do you think Macron is going to take from this? So he's got, he's got five more years as president. It'll be his final five years because of term limits. In his sort of victory speech, he sounded fairly conciliatory, both towards people who voted for Le Pen and people who stayed at home and people who voted for him purely tactically. Do you think he is going to see the increase in the vote for Le Pen over the past five years as reason to, to be a little bit more attuned to the concerns of, uh, of people in France? I suppose either this could go in terms of sort of people's economic disenchantment or he could do more of what you've been talking about, which is borrowing her, her right-wing talking points. I don't want to be cynical, but I doubt, uh, I doubt it will, it will be more attuned because this is exactly the same noise that he was making in 2017 during the campaign. And, and, and just as he was elected, he was saying things that seemed actually quite progressive by French standards about colonization or about Islam even. Uh, and very quickly he turned around because he felt it was a lot easier to have the far right as an alternative, uh, or as an opposition than, than, than to have a left, for example, because he, he proved unable to actually address what, what uh, a lot of people in France uh, would like to see addressed. Um, and so I suspect that there will be some noise that's going to be made before the parliamentary election, but that will try to be more conciliatory. But my feeling is that uh, Macron's pro-church strategy is just not working uh, and, and it will lead us down towards more kind of right-wing policy and, and a slight rightward, which will benefit the far right in the end. So I think it's really important that the left get their act together at this stage. Let's talk about the left and also those parliamentary elections you mentioned. They happen in, in June. What is the, the outlook for those? Is, is Macron expected to sort of romp home again or will Le Pen be able to do better than she did last time and will the left be able to get its act together? Well, the parliamentary elections are always a weird one in France, or I've been a, a weird one in the last 20 years because they happen soon after the, um, the presidential election. And, and what tends to happen is that there is a lot more abstention. There is a massive demobilization of, uh, of the electorate. And uh, generally, the president-elect ends up winning them fairly comfortably. I suspect this is probably what's going to happen again this time around. And I suspect Macron, even though he is less than popular, will probably be winning. The left has an opportunity, if not to win, to take a stand and a united stand and to offer a different vision of society. And if they did well, even if they didn't win, I think they could change at least the discourse for the next five years. But it seems fairly unlikely at the moment as, um, as the talks about, about unity on the left uh, appear to be stalling for various reasons and, and, and partly because of ego in some of the kind of candidates. 
which is very frustrating for, for left-wing supporters. The far right is unlikely to do very well in this election. Again, um, the far right has always done poorly in the parliamentary elections, winning only a handful of seats, which is fascinating when you think about Marine Le Pen getting to the second round twice in a row. But this is because of the French system and the, and the two rounds, which tend to really be difficult for the far right because all the other parties tend to ally against the far right in the second round and leave only one candidate against, against them. Whether this is going to hold what, what we call the Republican front in France, the idea that all parties ally against the far right, whether this is going to hold this time around is going to be interesting. And I think that's going to be one of the key lessons of the parliamentary elections, because we've seen this Republican front crumbling year after year. And it will be very interesting to see what the right-wing party, Les Républicains, for example, is doing and whether they will seek to do an alliance with the Macronists or whether they will pull out if they see that they cannot win or, or whether they will uh, seek to, to do alliances with, uh, with the far right. All of this is, remains to be seen, but, but a lot is up in the air at this stage and, um, and there will be many lessons. That was Aurelien Mondon speaking to me earlier today. Let's go to our next main story for the evening. Elon Musk is all set to buy Twitter for $44 billion. Twitter had initially been skeptical of the billionaire's approach, but softened once Musk came up with the cash. According to the New York Times, Musk secured $13 billion in debt financing from Morgan Stanley and other lenders, as well as $12.5 billion in loans against his stock in Tesla, and the rest of Twitter's equity will be bought with $21 billion of Elon Musk's cash. The deal has us all asking what Musk wants to do with the company, which is especially relevant given his motives don't appear to be straightforwardly financial. Twitter launched in 2006 and has only made a profit in two years of its existence. In 2020, it made a loss of over a billion dollars. Last year, it lost 220 million. All this suggests Musk is most interested in the power and influence wielded by the platform, which is used disproportionately by policymakers, journalists, and politicians. As to his priorities for the company, Musk's public comments have mostly concerned free speech. Last month, he tweeted, free speech is essential to a functioning democracy. Do you believe Twitter rigorously adheres to this principle of the 2 million people who voted? 70% said no, 30% said yes. Elon Musk seems to agree with his followers. He went on to say, given that Twitter serves as the de facto public town square, Failing to adhere to free speech principles fundamentally undermines democracy. What should be done? We have an answer as to what his argument was, or what his answer was to that question. Earlier this month at a TED event, Musk was asked about moderation of social media platforms. This is what he said. I think we, we would want to err on, the, if, if in doubt, uh, let, let, let the speech, let, let it exist. Uh, it would have, you know, if, if it's a, you know, uh, a gray area, I would say, let, let, the, let the tweet exist. Um, but obviously, you, you know, in, in a case where there's perhaps uh, a lot of controversy uh, that you would not want to necessarily promote that tweet, if, uh, you know. So the, I'm, not, I'm not saying this is, that I have all the answers here. Um, but I, I, I do think that we want to be just very reluctant to delete things and, and have... Um, just, just be very cautious with 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 per permanent bans. Uh, you know, timeouts I think are better uh, than, than than sort of permanent bans. And um, uh, but just just in general, like I said, uh, how how it won't be perfect. But I think we wanted to, to really uh, have 
like I said, the perception and reality that speech is as free as reasonably possible. And a good sign as to whether there is free speech is, uh, is, is someone you don't like allowed to say something you don't like. And if that is the case, then we have free speech. And it's, it's damn annoying when someone you don't like says something you don't like. That is a sign of a healthy, functioning, uh, free speech situation. Regardless of one's approach to offensive tweets, one might ask whether the world's richest man being able to buy Twitter outright is itself a sign of a healthy, functioning, free speech situation. But in terms of the most immediate effects of any takeover, what seemed clear from that answer is that Musk is opposed to permanent bans, and that could matter a lot for one man in particular, Donald Trump. Trump was banned from the platform in 2021 after the Capitol riots and following his repeated false claims that the election was stolen. At the time, Musk commented on the ban, tweeting, A lot of people are going to be super unhappy with West Coast high tech as the de facto arbiter of free speech. Well, now, with Musk as the West Coast high tech arbiter of free speech, Trump might be about to get a boost to his 2024 election campaign. I'm joined now by Barnaby Rain. Barnaby, what I want to know from you, billionaires, buying media platforms, it's not new. We've seen Jeff Bezos buy the Washington Post as his plaything, Carlos Slim, the biggest shareholder in the New York Times. How worried should we be about this particular development, about Musk buying Twitter? As you say, it's part of a broader phenomenon. Once upon a time in the history of capitalism, there were company towns. You worked down a mine. Your boss also owned the local shop and the local paper too. So he controlled what you ate and what you read about the world. We risk returning to that dystopia of unalloyed uh, kind of corporate power. Meanwhile, though, and here's the strange thing, there's a panic on about free speech, but in all the wrong ways. So our government and celebrity studied open letters announce an Orwellian drive to defend free speech from student protesters expressing their opinions. While the states prevent agenda, chills dissent, NGOs are reported to the Charity Commission if they speak out about things, job precarity means academics worry about saying anything controversial, employers surveil our social media so our private space to think and talk freely shrinks, the state attacks the BBC and Channel 4 when they say things the Tory party dislikes and they want to privatise Channel 4 while more and more of our media is controlled by a handful of billionaires from print media to new broadcast channels like GB News and Rupert Murdoch's Talk TV to social media platforms too. And libel laws insulate from criticism those rich enough to pay the legal fees. So class war is fought on every level, including over the news we receive and how we discuss it. And it's fought by the wealthy and by the state that represents them. That's the real free speech crisis. I've just checked Elon Musk's latest tweet. A couple of hours ago, I hope that even my worst critics remain on Twitter because that is what free speech means. I assume he's trying to tweet that as sort of like a reassurance. You know, even if you criticize me, you're allowed to stay on my platform. But I just find it completely chilling. This guy, who is the richest man in the world, is just able to wake up in the morning and decide, I am going to buy one of the most important communication platforms in the world, which millions and millions of people communicate over, and also which does have a key role in setting the media agenda. As I say, it's, it's not used by as many people as, for example, Facebook or, or Instagram, but it does set news cycles. It does sort of influence policy to a much greater degree than any of those other platforms. That's precisely why I think he wants to buy this. And the fact that he can say, don't worry, don't worry, I'm going to take complete control of this platform, but I'm not going to ban you from it. I find oh, just incredibly sinister. Now, he's posing this decision as 
potentially a one based on principles. He believes in free speech in a sort of absolutist perspective. He's really not into moderation on these platforms. He's saying he's just he just happens to be lucky enough that he can purchase this organization and put his beliefs into reality. I assume he's hoping that we're all grateful for him. There are potential avenues by which this could benefit him both financially as well as politically, though. My colleague Aaron Bastani has a great piece up on NavaraMedia.com about this. He says, while Musk's relationship with Trump was hardly plain sailing, he left the president's advisory group after the withdrawal of the US from the Paris Agreement. Earlier this year, the Tesla CEO tweeted that Biden was a damp sock puppet in human form. With Biden promoting the likes of GM, such as General Motors and Chrysler, Musk feels Tesla has been consistently overlooked by a man he views as a weak politician. Buying Twitter and allowing Trump to return to the platform would certainly be one way of getting the White House to show him more respect. Barnaby, what do you think there is to that? Might it be that by posing as a free speech champion, Musk is really just trying to get greater access to the most powerful politician in the world? Well, I don't know, that could be Xi Jinping. Uh, the American president, let's say. And this is the way of doing that. If you help the next guy get elected, then you have him to some degree in your pocket. And that means that more public cash will be flowing to his businesses. It's a kind of through the looking glass moment, isn't it? I mean, there's a more general right wing distortion at play here. So Elon Musk tells us that the way to defend free speech in the public sphere is to get the public sphere out of the control of the wrong billionaires and put it into the hands of the right billionaires, the ones who will act, he says, to protect our freedom. The right wing distortion is the idea that freedom is consistent with hierarchy. The idea that any of us are free when we live in a world in which our lives are subject to the arbitrary whims of a few powerful people. Even if those powerful people lay off us, even if we live under a tyrant who allows us to walk down the street freely, the fact that we're always subject to the tyrant's decision to move their batons against us, the fact that Elon Musk could at any moment, if he controls Twitter, decide that someone's pissed him off. And frankly, this is someone who is historically not the most level-headed all the time. The fact that he could decide that someone's pissed him off this week and so he wants to ban them from Twitter, that's not a world of freedom. There are long traditions, Republican traditions, thinking about freedom that have taught us for hundreds of years that when we live under the arbitrary power of a few, we're not free. And so a public sphere controlled by Rupert Murdoch, by the Barclay brothers, by Elon Musk, by Jack Dorsey, by Mark Zuckerberg, whoever it is, these are tiny numbers of individuals and we should have a public sphere where we're all free and we all control it democratically. The comparison you made earlier, which I think is, is a smart one, was to earlier stages of capitalism where you had businessmen, industrialists owning whole towns, owning the newspapers in that society. Now, I think there are a lot of similarities there. I think one which is probably going to be more familiar to our viewers because it's something which is pumped out to us constantly is somewhere like Russia where we're saying, oh, this is an oligarchy. You've got this man who owns this private militia. This man owns all of the TV stations. They're all close to Vladimir Putin. And we're supposed to see that as a sign that this is a defunct democracy. Now, there are many ways in which Russia's democracy is less democratic than ours. No one gets arrested or beat up for opposing wars in this country, even if they do get demonized. That's something we'll talk about later on in the show. But if you had in another country with a different political system to our own, if you had the richest person in that society buying the most significant media platform, and then you had the second richest person buying one of the most prestigious newspapers, I think we'd start to question how democratic that society was. But what we know is our media class, our ruling class are very, very bad at looking inwards. When it's in our society, suddenly it's fine, it's normal. Oh, no, no, no. Elon Musk buying up the largest, most significant when it comes to sort of its political impact platform. That's just a rich guy who wants to defend free speech. Jeff Bezos buying the Washington Post, one of the most important newspapers in the United States. 
That's just a guy who happens to be rich, who has an interest in investigative journalism, so he has saved a newspaper from collapsing. These are not reassuring developments. Regardless of Jeff Bezos's motivations, which I do have very little faith in, by the way, considering how he treats his, his, his workforce, having to rely on billionaires to keep newspapers afloat is really, really bad. And the consequences of just allowing Elon Musk to wake up one morning and say, I want to buy the most significant media platform in the world is, is terrible. I mean, it's also interesting because this is a publicly traded company. They can't really say no. So as I say, I, I don't have much love for the current owners of Twitter. At least it's not one person, though. I do think it's you know even less democratic when it's just one person. But they couldn't say no to this bid from Elon Musk because they have a fiduciary responsibility, which means that they have to do whatever is in the best interest of the shareholders. Now, Elon Musk has offered quite a lot of money per share. I think it's $54 per share. It was only sort of $38 per share a few weeks ago. So the people currently managing and running that firm are going to have a really difficult time justifying not selling it to him. So he essentially can force the most powerful company in the world to hand over control to him if he can stack up enough cash. And he is, as, as we keep saying, the richest man in the world, $250 billion or so. One other thing to note is, is again, because I don't think it gets talked about enough, this is not exceptional. Billionaires, as I've talked about, privately own the Washington Post. They also own the Boston Globe. As I've said, Mexican billionaire Carlos Slim is the NYT's largest investor in the UK. The Telegraph, Times, Mail, Independent and Evening Standard are all privately owned by billionaires. This is not the sign of a healthy democracy. If you want to read that article from Aaron Bastani that I quoted before, do go to navarromedia.com. The link is in the description box below. Our journalism is only possible because of your kind support. There are no billionaires that have swooped in to buy us and who can dictate our editorial line. I know all of these billionaires say, oh no, these, these people, we don't tell journalists what to do. We, we, we never call up the editor. Anyone who's worked at The Sun or The Times will say that is not remotely true. Rupert Murdoch has massive influence over what is printed in those publications. I know less about Jeff Bezos, but I suspect he has a reasonable amount of control and that's why he stumped up all of that cash. If you do and want to help grassroots media that's not controlled by billionaires, go to tomorrowmedia.com slash support. We really do appreciate it. From worrying stories about media ownership to terrible things which have been printed in our press, the Mail on Sunday has published a bizarre and grim hit piece on Labour's deputy leader, Angela Rayner. This is how they splashed the story. Tories accuse Rayner of basic instinct ploy to distract Boris. The article goes on to say, Tory MPs have mischievously suggested that Ms Rayner likes to distract the Prime Minister when he is at the dispatch box by deploying a fully clothed parliamentary equivalent of Sharon Stone's infamous scene in the 1992 film Basic Instinct. Now, in case you weren't aware, in Basic Instinct, Sharon Stone's character is brought in for questioning by the police. In an interview room full of men, she slowly uncrosses and then recrosses her legs without wearing any underwear beneath her short dress. Angela Rayner was, of course, wearing underwear, so the similarity with Stone's character appears to simply be that Labour's deputy leader dared to move her legs. As well as misogyny, the article didn't hide its classism. It quotes a Tory MP as saying, she knows she can't compete with Boris's Oxford Union debating training, but she has other skills which he lacks, oh, which in that sense presumably means moving her legs. She has admitted as much when enjoying drinks with us on the Commons terrace. 
Now, Raina has actually shown herself to be pretty good at the dispatch box. There have been a number of occasions where she's clearly rattled the PM. There isn't this, a big discussion about why does she keep losing? But these Tory MPs don't seem to think that's possible because she didn't go to Oxford. She couldn't possibly be a decent debater. She couldn't possibly hold Boris Johnson to account because she wasn't a member or president as he was of the Oxford Union. It is, of course, on the whole, a, a ridiculous story. It is embarrassing it got published. But it is worth noting, if it does contain any element of truth, to be honest, I'm, I'm sure it doesn't, but if it did, it's not Rayner who comes out badly. The implication from both the journalist and the quoted Tory MP is that we have a Prime Minister so sex-mad and distractible that he can't hold a line of thought when a fully clothed woman moves her limbs in his line of sight. MPs from all parties were quick to condemn the story. This was Labour's Rachel Reeves. I'm just not surprised because this sort of sexism and misogyny, it is frankly the sort of rubbish that female MPs, but also female staffers in the House of Commons, have to put up with every single day. And you know, when I hear a minister just now say, oh, I haven't heard this sort of thing before, talk to your female colleagues. Talk to the women who work in your office because a lot of them would have experienced this sort of thing. And here is Chris Philp, the technology minister. When you read what was written by the Mail on Sunday's political editor, what was your response? I was appalled. I was appalled that um, that sentiment was being expressed. It's offensive. Uh, it's misogynistic. The prime minister and cabinet ministers would be absolutely right to roundly condemn that sentiment and to offer support to Angela uh, Rayner on this issue. I've never heard anyone uh, say anything like that or even hinted it. And if I did, I would be disgusted and appalled. Nobody should have to suffer the kind of uh, misogynistic um, abuse which that sentiment amounts to. That was Chris Philp attempting to give the impression that misogyny would never go unnoticed in the House of Commons, which is pretty hard to believe given another story that came out this weekend. The Sunday Time reports that three members of Johnson's cabinet have been referred to the Independent Complaints and Grievance Scheme over sexual misconduct allegations. That's as well as two members of the Shadow Cabinet. The cabinet ministers and Labour frontbenchers haven't yet been named, but they are amongst 56 MPs who have been referred to the watchdog over some 70 complaints. The Sunday Times had this detail. At least one complaint is believed to involve criminality and concerns an allegation that an MP bribed a member of staff in return for sexual favours. Remember, there are only 650 MPs, so if you've got more than 50 of them who are now having complaints such as these made about them, that does tell you about something of the the kind of people who are in there and what they can get away with. In response to both stories, Tory party co-chairman Oliver Dowden was asked whether Westminster was a safe place to be a woman. Uh, yes, I do think it's a, a safe place to be a woman. And I think actually we've made uh, big improvements over the past uh, 20 or 30 years. And some of the, the things that happened, I'm sure, uh, when you were a, a young reporter, when I started out in, in Westminster, certainly wouldn't happen now. And I think that's, that's something that has Im improved very much for the better. Now, that is not an answer that should fill anyone with confidence. Do you think Parliament is a safe place for women? Well, it's a hell of a lot safer than it used to be. And you should know as a woman who is a reporter who's reported in Parliament for a while. That is such a low bar to start from with that sort of nod, nod, wink, wink. You know what used to happen in there. It's a little bit better than that. Barnaby, your response to those two stories. Part of the absurdity here is a pretense. Whenever this kind of thing is called out, that it's just a few bad apples. And it's particularly absurd when we have a prime minister 
Boris Johnson with a litany of sexist comments behind him. Uh, he said a few years ago that when a woman colleague offers an opinion, you should just pat her on the bottom and send her on her way. He talked about the feebleness of the modern Britain. This is Boris Johnson. The feebleness of the modern Britain, his reluctance or inability to take control of his woman. And as you said, there are class connotations to the sexism here. Not all women are the same in this view. Angela Rayner is a single mum. Our prime minister thinks single mums are, quote, ill-raised, ignorant, aggressive and illegitimate. Angela Rayner has a northern accent. Our prime minister thinks the people of Liverpool, you'll remember, are drunks and hooked on grief because they led a heroic campaign against the whole apparatus of sneering class power in the media and police after 97 fans were killed at Hillsborough. Boris Johnson is distinctive only for saying the quiet part out loud. He's distinctive in the same way as this Mail on Sunday article is, expressing ruling class bigotries without restraint and with a kind of cheeky glee. But the problem is not incivility. It's not just how we talk. It's what people do. It's how this kind of contempt allows overwhelmingly white male Tory MPs to cut funding to women's refuges so that women's aid, call this a crisis, where domestic violence services are £200 million short of the funding they need and women, women's aid say, are being turned away. Just ask yourself what kind of politics and what kind of politicians get us to that horrific place where women are struggling and the cost of solving it, £200 million, women's aid say, is small change compared to, say, corporation tax cuts or the tax cuts for the wealthy that those rich Tory MPs have given themselves in recent years. It's a politics where Jacob Rees-Mogg sneers that women should complain to the police after a serving police officer murders a woman. That was his advice. Maybe you should take it up with the police. It's not just about an article then. And it's not just about one woman who has a platform. So unlike most, she's able to complain and be heard. Very disturbingly, I, I read rumours today reported in the press that 70 MPs may have allegations of sexual violence against them in, in the parliamentary process. Many of those involve women who are humiliated in the shadows, who are cowed into silence or ignored when they complain. That's how power works. Power works so that MPs get away with harassing women, bosses get away with harassing women. The same politicians give bosses tax cuts and then use the money that the public exchequer loses to cut services to women desperately needed domestic violence services. That's what structural misogyny looks like in our society. Let's take a look at some more responses to that article in the mail. So this was a fairly depressing call made to Ben Kentish on LBC. I just think you're forgetting about human nature and basic instincts, which Sharon Stone's film was called. I mean, why did she have to sit in front of him and cross her legs and why and wear Because a short she's shirt? the deputy why leader of the opposition, Josephine. That's why so she sits ridiculous. opposite him. She, what, what's she done wrong in your view? But, Apart from having no, legs she and crossing, to flaunt herself. It's like being sorry, a sorry. In what way has she flaunted her? In, 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 in what Why way has she flaunted herself? In what way has she flaunted herself? She should be exercising a little bit more decorum. But sorry, I don't understand. Do she has two legs. Like. She's dared to like cross that. them in the House it's of Commons. It's a basic instinct for men to ogle women, and they've done it since the beginning of time. And you, with all your fancy words and theories and what have you are not going to change that. I almost am lost for words, Josephine. I yeah, don't understand you how you... Th- well, I am. You should be. I, well, yes, you, so quite. So I should be. Given what you've just said. Program, the male and females, they flaunt themselves in front but of can, each can I, other. Hold, hold on, hold on, hold on. In what way has Angela Rayner sitting where her job dictates that she has to sit on the front bench next to Keir Starmer at Prime Minister's Questions. What is she meant to do, in your view, Josephine? 
What is she meant to do? Equal in that sort of way because they're not. But what is she meant to do? Wear sensible clothes and not... But no one's suggesting she hasn't. No one's suggesting this is about her clothes. This is about the fact that she's uncrossed her legs. No, she, she was. She, she was. I've seen the picture. I've got the Daily Mail and I just laughed and turned the page over. Okay, I've got it in front of me. Right. She's wearing... What she's... is she trying to say? <sighs> she's trying to distract him from saying something sensible because we all know that he likes the ladies and he expresses it more than most people. And I just, I just think you're just, you're just so stupid for falling for, that, for her rubbish. Now, that was a very gross response. We've got two other responses which were embarrassing for a different reason, though. So, commenting on the Mail on Sunday piece, Boris Johnson tweeted this at 11.07am on Sunday. As much as I disagree with Angela Rayner on almost every political issue, I respect her as a parliamentarian and deplore the misogyny directed at her anonymously today. Perfectly reasonable tweet. The problem was, just 16 minutes later, Nadine Doris tweeted this. As much as I disagree with Angela Rayner on almost every political issue, I respect her as a parliamentarian and deplore the misogyny directed at her anonymously today. Exactly the same tweet. It could not be any clearer that both social media teams or both politicians, whoever it was, copied and pasted a suggested tweet from Tory central office. It doesn't seem like they are being particularly sincere here. Chris Phillips, government minister, though, had other ideas. The exact same mm-hmm. tweet. What's going on here? Well, I mean, they, they share the same view. Their colleagues in government... They share the same view to the word. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, Nadine, Dor- Nadine is my boss and she, mm-hmm. she feels very strongly about um, the place of women in politics and that this sort of abuse is unacceptable. I'm sure she'll have discussed it with the Prime Minister. Um, they'll have reached the same view and they've used the same words. There's nothing surprising that two colleagues in government have exactly the same view and use the same words. There is nothing surprising about mm-hmm. two human beings sitting down at a keyboard and tapping out exactly the same sentence construction. They've got the same view on this issue. Honestly, you're, you're trying to maintain that the culture secretary didn't copy and paste this. Well, they this might... wasn't something that was sent to her. These aren't her own words. They're clearly not her own words because they were said by the Prime Minister well, 15 minutes Look, before. I mean, I've heard Nadine talk about this kind of issue in private quite a lot. And I can tell you the sentiments being expressed there are sentiments I've heard her express countless times over the, over the last uh, nine months that I've, I've worked with her. So it doesn't surprise me at all that she's expressing herself so strongly. But nor does it surprise me that she and the Prime Minister are saying exactly the same thing. Doesn't surprise me that they're saying exactly the same thing. Barnaby, I don't really envy Chris Philp there. He was in a difficult situation. I'm not sure how you were supposed to defend that. How do you think he did? Oh, Michael, Chris Philp has form. Here's a little personal story for you. He was once unsuccessfully the the conservative candidate for my parents' constituency. And my mum, who works in public health, saw him spreading dodgy information about hospital closures. So she told him several times. He heard. And then he just kept repeating the same dodgy facts. There's nothing new about this. Uh, Truth has a very marginal place in our politics. It is at best a distant cousin of most politicians. Um, And that's worth saying. It's worth saying that this is old news because we hear a lot about post-truth politics these days after Brexit when people voted for something that most liberal journalists didn't like uh, and suddenly they were worried about lies in politics. It's a theme now to talk about lies in politics. Well, that anti-Brexit campaign was led, among others, by two former prime ministers, David Cameron, who, of course, ironically enough, 
had broken Britain with austerity cuts that played an undoubted role in causing Brexit. But the other ex-Prime Minister who played such a leading role in the anti-Brexit campaign was Tony Blair, who broke trust in politics by issuing a signal lie about Iraq's weapons of mass destruction, which didn't just cause Britain to leave a trading bloc, but killed a million people. Uh, Alistair Campbell, great anti-Brexit warrior uh, in the name of truth and, and very opposed to post-truth politics. It is a kind of bizarre Alice in Wonderland moment uh, that Alistair Campbell, the spin doctor who lied and a million people died, uh, can be the warrior against post-truth, can be the warrior against lies. So I think it's time we have a conversation about dishonesty in our politics, not one skewed that only talks about dishonesty when people vote for things that BBC and Guardian journalists dislike, but one that is attentive to the dishonesty that structured our whole politics for as long as anyone can remember. They only talk about post-truth when The Guardian and the BBC don't like the result. We obviously heard about post-truth a lot more after Brexit than we did after the re-election of a government that had killed a bunch of people with their crazy policies. I'm talking about the Conservatives in 2015. Let's go to our final story. Jeremy Corbyn recently sat down for a wide-ranging interview with John Pienaar of Times Radio. Among the topics discussed was the question of NATO and whether it should be disbanded. This is what Corbyn said. If the time was ripe to disband NATO at the fall of the Soviet bloc in the light of the Ukraine invasion, do you now, today, as you sit there, still believe it would be right to disband NATO or for Britain to leave? I would want to see a world where we start to ultimately disband all military alliances. No, now, wait a minute. And today, you, here. Yeah, I know, you, I know what you're trying to do. I fully understand that. The issue has to be, what's the best way of bringing about peace in the future? Is it by more alliances? Is it by more military build-up? Or is it by um, stopping the war in Ukraine and the other wars which you haven't mentioned at all in this discussion that are going on at the present time, uh, which are also killing a very large number of people? And ask yourself the question, do military alliances bring peace or do they actually encourage each other and build up to a greater danger? No. I don't blame NATO for the fact that Russia's in invaded Ukraine. What I say is look at the thing historically, and look at the process that could happen at the end of the Ukraine war. Yeah. And your conclusion at the end of that argument, I'm going to move on, but your, your conclusion at the end of the argument you've just given is that it would be right to disband NATO now. Look, um, it's not going to be disbanded now. What it, I think will happen is some kind of much deeper security discussion, as indeed NATO was having a security discussion with Russia until mm. last year. They were even having joint exercises mm. only three years ago. This hasn't changed. My view is that uh, military alliances tend to yeah. build up um, a mirror image of each and other and you, get the, and you get the danger okay. because of that. And we'd be better off with that, Nazi. Well, I think we'd be better off in a world at peace rather than a world at war. And we'd be better off with all those resources instead of going into military equipment and military development and military expenditure. We're actually dealing with the world food crisis and the environmental crisis and the health crisis that we face at the present time. Money spent on weapons is money not spent on health, education and housing. Now, I thought that was a fairly reasonable answer. Corbyn says clearly that he doesn't blame NATO for Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And in fact, earlier in the interview, he was clear that Russia bears sole responsibility for the attack. But he does make the point, which seems to be a fairly obvious and uncontroversial one, that military buildup amongst the members of one so-called defensive alliance tends to lead to military buildup in countries outside of it. Corbyn didn't comment on whether or not NATO should disband now. That's what the, the host was trying to get from him. And, of course, everything he said there has been Corbyn's position throughout his time as a politician. 
and it didn't garner much comment when he was Labour leader. However, it's now become a massive stick with which to beat Keir Starmer with. This was Sophie Rayworth on the BBC. Can I ask you about Jeremy Corbyn? He, was, uh, he did an interview uh, this week. Uh, while he was Labour leader, he said NATO should reduce its presence along Russia's borders. He said that he couldn't say if he, could, he would come to the aid of a NATO ally if it was attacked by President Putin. What does it say about your judgment that you, you campaigned to make him leader for him to become the next prime yeah. minister? Well, the first thing I'd say is um, the position of Jeremy Corbyn on NATO and my position are very, very different. I went to Brussels just the other week to see the Secretary General of NATO to talk about the situation in Ukraine and to make absolutely clear the Labour Party's unshakable support for NATO. Uh, Labour uh, was, of course, Ernest Bevin, the uh, Labour minister, was the um, politician who signed the treaty for NATO on behalf of the United Kingdom. So um, I've been very, very clear where the Labour Party under my as leadership has, stands. As has Jeremy Corbyn when on Jeremy his attitude Corbyn, to NATO. When Jeremy Corbyn was leader of the Labour Party, we maintained a pro-NATO position, not least because of those of us in the party arguing for that position. So the Labour Party position never changed on NATO. It's been a very important part uh, of our defence and our security for many, many years. We were there at the start when NATO was set up you, and we are ve there very strongly now. Given, given his support. views now, do you look back and think that you were wrong to campaign for him in the way that you did? I think I was um, right to argue through those years and in the two years or so that I've been leader about the importance of NATO. I'm talking about him. Well, um, we as a party never shifted our position on NATO. Um, but and that's because campaign for him, given the views that he held? Well, the Labour Party position at the last election was pro-NATO, as it was the, the election before and the election before that. So part of Starmer's answer there was at least coherent. It was the case that Labour remained committed to staying in NATO, whether or not Corbyn was keen on the policy. The other part of that answer, though, was just, I mean, frankly, pathetic. The 2019 election was just over two years ago. Everything we know about Corbyn now, we knew then. So either you, Keir Starmer, tried to get someone elected who you thought was dangerous and beyond the pale, or you're now just falling into line and pretending you think Corbyn is dangerous and beyond the pale because it gets you kudos from right-wingers. Neither of those options make you look good. It just makes you hate the guy. Come on. Now, I just want to briefly show you the next part of that exchange because in it, Starmer goes from fairly pathetic to downright dishonest. Will he ever be a Labour MP again? Well, you know, it's very difficult to see how that situation can now be um, resolved. Um, he lost the whip because of his response to the Equality and Human Rights Commission in relation to anti-Semitism. I made it very clear. Um, first thing I said as Labour Party leader that I was going to tear out anti-Semitism by its roots in our party. I've also made it clear that um, our position in the Labour Party is not to accept the false equivalence uh, between, um, you know, Russian aggression and, and the acts of NATO. So that, that's basically a no. He will not be a Labour MP again. Well, I'm very clear on my positions on those two issues. Very, very clear. There were two issues which Starmer there cited as a block to Corbyn regaining the whip. One was his response to the EHRC report. We've talked about that issue at length. The other was that Corbyn has apparently drawn a false equivalence between NATO and Russia when it comes to the invasion of Ukraine. But as you should realise by now, that's just not true. We just showed you a clip where he explicitly said Putin, not NATO, is responsible for Russia's invasion. That from Keir Starmer was frankly just a lie. 
Barnaby, I want your take on this. There's, there's a lot to say about the exchanges we just watched. What strikes me most, though, I think what I find most sort of frustrating, and it's about the media as much as Keir Starmer, is how little curiosity there was in any of those questions. Like, what we're seeing now isn't exactly a sign of the success of Western military strategy over the past 20 years. Yet if you criticize or, or dare to question Western military strategy since the fall of the Berlin Wall, since the end of the Cold War, you should be ejected from mainstream politics. Yeah, people often think that the left-right dividing line inside social democracy in countries like Britain is a question of how high you want taxes to be on the rich or how much you want to nationalize things, these kind of economic questions. The fundamental dividing lines have so often been around questions of imperialism, as well as questions of migration, racism, the monarchy, questions about loyalty to the British nation state, where those on the moderate wing of social democracy are uh, furiously opposed to the radicals who they see as not only wanting to redistribute a few of the spoils to the working classes here at home, but also wanting to take apart a whole apparatus of control and domination, which stretches from the power that the boss has over our lives to the power that the police have over our lives, the power that soldiers have over the lives of so many people around the world. A, a politics of uh, skepticism about imperial power all over the world has long been the thing that's been most hated uh, on the Labour left and the left more generally. Why? Because it's a question of the politics of freedom. You know, Jeremy Corbyn doesn't have what are sometimes presented in the media as strange, bizarre, sandal-wearing sympathies with people all around the world just because he's a kind of anorak who cares about South America because he went there as a young man and was inspired by Salvador Allende in Chile because he cares about Palestinians just because he likes them. He cares about these things for the same reason that he cares about people here at home because he wants everyone to live lives of freedom. And so it's very telling when a Labour politician doesn't care about the freedom of the Palestinian people, as Keir Starmer doesn't, or doesn't care about American coups in South America, American US-backed coups in South America, or doesn't have anything critical to say about NATO, or doesn't seem to mind much, other than worrying that it's a bit too expensive when refugees are drowned in the channel or shipped off to Rwanda. Uh, when politicians don't care about these very helpless and desperate people all around the world, you have a clue about how they talk about you if they thought they could get away with it. That's why these apparently distant questions of foreign policy matter so much. NATO is a supposedly defensive alliance which has launched every major war in which it's been involved since 9-11. The claim to be defensive was emptied by the end of the Cold War when its antagonist disappeared. The Warsaw Pact was dissolved. So NATO found a new enemy specter at the gates, terrorism. But the real goal is the defense of waning American hegemony and a unipolar world system. That's what NATO exists for. Any discussion of that is, of course, silenced, chilled in this land of free speech. Uh, these are things you can't say because the whole British state, its left and right wings, are united behind that kind of violence. Russia right now is the criminal aggressive invader in Ukraine. NATO is the criminal aggressive invader in Afghanistan and its friends are in Yemen. These parties are not so different. They are two violent imperialist powers. And the only people who have credibility, as Jeremy Corbyn does, in standing with those Russian heroes protesting on Russia's streets against its war, the only people who have credibility, horrified when Russia breaks international law, ignores the UN Security Council, violates the sovereignty of an independent country, the only people who have any credibility in complaining about those things are the people who complain with equal force when Western powers or anyone around the world does exactly the same thing. You can't trust, you can't take seriously the concern for the freedom of Ukrainians from people who don't give a damn about other people's freedom when it's less convenient for their geopolitical aims. Let's look at one more clip from that interview. This is the one that caused the most outrage from pundits on Twitter. 
Jeremy, do you consider Zelensky a hero yourself? He stood up in a very difficult situation and he's <clears throat> managed to unite people and get a very important world stage to expose what's going on. But the next stage has to be to stop the fighting. We can't just be spectators in the horror what's going on in front of us when mm -hmm. if we're in a position to do anything about it, we should do something about it. Do you admire him as a leader? I've never met him, I don't know. Well, I can't well, I've really never say met that. him and I certainly <coughs> admire him. Do you admire him? I think he speaks well and I admire that. I think the, the outrage to that clip was obviously a little bit overblown, but I haven't met him isn't a great answer to the question of whether you, you admire someone. You can definitely admire people that you haven't yet met. Barnaby, how would you have answered that question? Well, Michael, I don't know that I have a short answer, I'm afraid. I understand Corbyn's predicament. I mean, here's the truth. Uh, and the truth often is messy. Ukraine is today, as Russia was in the 1990s, an oligarchic kleptocracy with rival capitalist factions who compete to rule. Igor Kolomoisky, a major Ukrainian oligarch, launched Zelensky's career. He owns, I think, four TV channels, launched Zelensky's TV career. He's an oligarch who used to own Ukraine's biggest bank uh, that I think was shut down for corruption. The Paradise Papers leak showed Zelensky and several of his close associates with large amounts of money and assets stored overseas in tax havens, though Zelensky claimed to be an anti-corruption candidate, assets that come from Kolomoisky. Uh, he's no angel. Kolomoisky, interestingly, though, uh, was relatively pro-Russian. Uh, Zelensky was a peace candidate, unlike Poroshenko, his predecessor. Uh, and Zelensky was pushed into, and part of the sort of horror of Russia's invasion is that they didn't face a very saber-rattling Ukrainian president. Uh, Zelensky was pushed into confrontation with Russia by the pressures of domestic politics. Massive demonstrations in Kiev after he tried to sign a deal with Russia that could have granted uh, uh, Donbass region special autonomous status in 2020. So now... The situation in Ukraine is, is firstly that Zelensky is sort of forced to deal with a polity whose far right has been rendered crucial to it by eight years of war in the East. The Azov Battalion integrated, neo-Nazi battalion integrated into the Ukrainian army in 2014. Dmitry Yarosh of the right sector, a special advisor to the Ukrainian military. Uh, Kotsubelo, fascist uh, militia leader, uh, given a hero of Ukraine status by Zelensky. All these are things Zelensky is not especially keen on, but the, 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 the hardline nationalistic presence is always upped by moments of war. And then secondly, you've got Zelensky now in a moment of war saying things like the fact he wants to Ukraine, model Ukraine, uh, post-war Ukraine, not on any European country, but on heavily militarized Israel, a good kind of analogy for the way NATO sees Ukraine, a frontier of civilization against the barbaric wilderness. NATO supports highly reactionary politics in Ukraine as it has all around the world. Two things are true. Ukraine is treated as a pawn in Western imperialism's attempt to encircle and weaken Russia. And Ukraine has now been attacked in an imperialist invasion by Russia, which wants Ukraine to be its semi-colony and to rebuild the Russian empire uh, that Lenin tore apart a century ago. And every Ukrainian has the right to defend themselves against that imperialist attack. Those two truths together are tricky. And so in each imperial block, you're only allowed to mention one of them. In Russia today, you're not allowed to talk about the imperialism of Russia's attack on Ukraine. And in the West, though, of course, less brutally, you're not allowed to talk about the way in which uh, uh, Western imperialism has, uh, has treated Ukrainians as a pawn for so long. That's what I'd say, but I'll never be leader of the Labour Party. Yeah, never say never. I mean, I suppose, <laughs> the, you know, the debate that lots of people are having about Ukraine, lots of Ukrainian people who I'm reading on Twitter are saying, look, we shouldn't just be shown as passive in this. There was a genuine desire to join NATO, NATO in Ukraine for XYZ reason, only since 2014. But we have covered um, a lot of those topics on this show before. Barnaby Rain, it's been a pleasure speaking to you this evening. It's been a joy as always, Michael.
We will be back on Wednesday at 7pm. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.